Today's scripture reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 to chapter 5, verse 10. This can be found in your pew Bibles in page 818. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now we know that if the, heavenly, if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we were in this tent, we groan, and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. May God bless the reading of his word. Now, if you're in tune with pop culture you would have heard a lot about Meryl Streep's nose this week. Or at least if you're in tune with old white guy pop culture, you would have heard a lot about Meryl Streep's nose this week. Some of you may not even know who Meryl Streep is. You're so young, right? But anyway, she is the lead in Margaret, in the movie about Margaret Thatcher, The Iron Lady. She was also the lead in The Devil Wears Prada. Now, the thing to be said about the Iron Lady, I mean, that's a great part, because if you have a big nose and you're getting on in years, it's, I, you can play a British prime minister. But, but what she said about her no, nose this week, well, you know, she received a, uh, in, this year she received an uh, honorary doctorate from Indiana University. And in the course of it, she mentioned in the course of her speech, uh, she mentioned that in the 70s, she thought she would never be able to make it as an actor because of her nose. And she said, quote, I used to hate my nose. Now, at this point in her career, it doesn't worry her anymore. Now, to the point, another point she made to reinforce it was that by the time she turned 40, the year that she turned 40, she got three invitations for three different movies to play the part of a witch. Big nose, 40-plus, woman, witch. She, she thought her career was over then. 
So she hated her nose. Now, you know, the whole, because of the whole body image thing, that this catches up in the news. Now, I get this nose thing. Any Caucasian gets this nose thing. When my kids were born in Asia, you know, and when Ben, Ben was born in Singapore, and so for a long time, I mean, he was about, I took him to a meeting. Uh, our missionary society had a lot of Caucasian missionaries and had a lot of national staff, so we had a lot of Asians, a lot of Caucasians. And when Ben was three or four, he hadn't yet been to America, so he was far more familiar with Asian culture. He was far more Asian at that point than American. And I had to take him to a meeting, and I, you know, I put him on a, he was just sitting on a chair in the midst of a meeting while I socialized with a lot of the people around, we were eating. And then I saw a smile, a big grin creep across his face. Big man. And he's still young. I'm trying to figure out my kid and come to understand him, you know, and see his personality available. So I went over and said, well, what's so funny, Ben? And he says, Daddy, some of these people have big noses. <laughs> Any white guy can get this. You know, Asians have a little bit more trouble with this. You know, why does this matter so much, right? Because you all got these, a lot, most of you got these little noses and little bridges on your nose. I was once in a Bible study, just to show you, it's not me, not just and me being condescending or ethnocentric. I was in a Bible study once with a fellow who has a PhD in Chinese studies. He's Caucasian. PhD in Chinese studies. He's a Christian. He heads a famous international ministry that reaches out to mainlanders. And he's married to a Chinese woman. And we, in the midst of this Bible study, one of the warm-up questions was, what attracted your spouse to you? We were all married couples. What attracted your spouse to you? And so we had to share with our spouse what attracted, and then we had to share with the group what attracted the spouse. And when it came to his wife's turn to share, she was so embarrassed, or thought it was just so silly. She said, he liked my nose. <laughs> As if somehow she felt maybe, you know, he liked my brain. Or he liked my face or whatever, but she was kind of disappointed. But this is a big deal for Caucasian culture, is the size of your nose. Because some of us have big noses. Well, I don't know what the issue is for you, but I suppose a lot of you have issues. The latest thing I understand, at least for women, is this thigh gap thing going on. Now, it really helps to be knock-kneed. Because then, you know, your, your thighs are naturally further apart. But, but people starving themselves so they can have a gap between their thighs. I don't know where, who decided that was a thing to have. Maybe it's the shape or size of your forehead. Maybe it's your weight. Maybe it's your height. You know, the latest thing is selfies, right? Now, I'm really behind the technology. I've never taken a selfie. I, don't, I think I have a camera on my phone, but I've never used I don't know how to use it. But my understanding is, so I'm sure all of you already know this, but there's actually apps for your phone so you can improve your own selfie. Anybody have an app on their phone so that they can make their selfie better? And then... I, there was a Boston Globe article uh, editor who two, two days ago declared a moratorium. Let's end all this whole thing about selfies. And then yesterday he complained because some woman is spending $15,000 to have plastic surgery so her selfies will look better. 
apparently the app doesn't do enough for her in her own image. Now, again, again, if you're in touch with, with old white guy pop culture, you would have woken up this morning to know that t- Twitter is a buzz. Now, I don't do Twitter, you right? But I, I, I read Time Magazine's reports about Twitter, so I, you know, <laughs> I'm really old school. Anyway, you heard the news today? George Clooney is engaged. And there were some complaints in Twitter about this. One woman says, I've heard that George Clooney is engaged, but there's no ring on my finger, so I don't believe it. Another woman wrote, I regret now telling my mother that I would get married when George Clooney got married. And then she added to George, she said, George, I gave you one job to do. Uh, Another woman said, I just want to shake this woman's hand and say, well done, on behalf of all women everywhere. Another woman tweeted, tweeted? I don't do it. Another woman wrote, another dream dies. George Clooney is engaged. And a gay guy wrote, another dream dies. (laughs) George Clooney is engaged. Now, the whole sermon is not going to be about noses. But the, the point is this. We have a lot of dissatisfactions in life. And a lot of them are pretty superficial. Well, a lot of them are body-related dissatisfactions in life, right? Body image-related. And a lot of them are pretty superficial. Now, maybe we're a little bit nobler than body image hang-ups. Maybe our hang-up is our intelligence. Maybe our hang-up is personality, and maybe it's legitimate. Maybe, you know, you suffer from anxiety or depression, and, you know, it runs in your family history. And you figure you've already fought about against this for years, and you figure you might be fighting against it your whole life. And, you know, life can get tiring. Maybe you're just not as popular. Again, because maybe you're quiet rather than being the extrovert that American culture wants. You're the quiet introvert that Asian culture wants. Uh, you know, maybe you've got some kind of social disability, Asperger's or autism spectrum, and you think, yeah. You know, and you're cluey enough to realize, or you're socially awkward. You don't know what's going on, but you just you don't connect with people, and and you know it's a, a burden. Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's intellectual. You know, you you wish you could skate. Oh, did you hear about the guy? At least maybe one person, maybe the only person in the country who was accepted at all eight Ivy League colleges. There's eight, right? He got, accepted, he, got entered, he got accepted to all eight, and then the real dilemma he faced in life is which of these eight should he grace with his presence? Maybe you wish you could skate into an Ivy League college and, and you just work as hard as you work, you're not going to make it. Or maybe it's the amount of money you grew up with or the amount of money you have now. Or, you know, there's a lot of dissatisfactions with life, and some of them are body-related, body-image-related, body-related. Uh, some of them are imagined, some of them are real. Some of them are not body-related. Some of them are other parts of life. Some of them are really superficial, but it doesn't really matter. If it matters to us, it's not superficial. You've got to know that Meryl Streep's life 
career would have been easier if her nose was a different shape or if she was willing to have a nose job. You know, commended for her for not. You've got to know. George Clooney, you've got to know his career is somewhat related to his appearance. And if he looked more like me, maybe he would have a less of a career or this, you know. You've got to know that this stuff does matter at one level. Now, the worst part of it is, not just that it matters, but the second part of the problem is this. Not just that it matters in our culture, but that our culture influences us, and so it matters inside the church often. Now, when I was a young adult, in sem- I was in seminary. When I was in seminary, I was in a young adult fellowship group, one of the leaders. There were four male leaders over the course of two years. There were four male leaders. And we had, I think, of two women who were in kind of related to leadership or connected with leadership. Actually, one woman in leadership who had kind of a prominent nose and had belonged to Christian history, was a really faithful servant, devoted. Another woman who was barely a new convert, and she was cute in many respects, including a small little button nose, kind of like an Asian nose, you know. All four male leaders, who do you suppose they all four simultaneously chased? Or we all four simultaneously chased? Yeah, so even what happens is, even in the church we have these cultural values. And that's the bigger problem, I think. It's one thing to face it out in the community, out in the world. Another thing to face it inside the church. Well, Paul faced a, a different grounds. It wasn't about the size of his nose, but uh, different grounds. Paul faced a similar problem, twofold problem. The Corinthians had certain values, and they despised Paul because of those values. So, so Paul had a struggle in life, and that struggle was not just with the world around him. That struggle was also with the people in the church because they brought the world's values into the church and how they evaluated Paul. So turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to see, first of all, what Paul's struggle was, and then how the Corinthians added to that struggle, the Christian culture added to that struggle. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Notice, uh, I'll just read to you from the broader context, chapter 4, 8, and 9. Here's what Paul describes, how he describes his life and his struggles. His struggles were not about his physical appearance. His struggles were not about his intellectual capabilities. His struggles were not about all the things that we get fussed about, these peripheral things, these uh, superficial things. But he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We are hard-pressed on every side. Perplexed persecuted, struck down. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. Everywhere His struggles were ministry-related, and everywhere he went, he faced harassment. He was chased out of one city after another. He'd go into a town, he'd preach for three weeks, and he'd have to run away for his life. One time, like a coward, he was lowered out of the window in a city wall. Somebody that lived, the, whose apartment was abutted the city walls, lowered him out the window so he could run away. Chapter 6, he adds this. We face troubles, we face hardships, we face distress. We face beatings, we face imprisonments, we face riots. We face hard work, 
sleepless nights, and hunger. Paul was imprisoned. He often he didn't have enough clothes to keep himself warm in prison. The prisons weren't heated. He had to depend on people to bring him food and clothing, and not of the, not, a lot of the people didn't want to associate with him. Paul faced a lot of struggles. Now, his struggles were particularly ministry-oriented. They weren't physical appearance or intellectual abilities or, or job-related. They were, they were ministry-related. But there's a, we're, going to, we're going to explore the parallel between these. Now, the second part of Paul's problem was this. When the Roman authorities were dissatisfied with Paul, they did these things to him, whether the beating or the imprisonment. They did it just not just to punish, but to humiliate. You know, even like we just celebrated Easter, right? The crucifixion was designed not just to make somebody suffer, but it was designed also to humiliate them, strip them naked, hang them on a cross, have them die slowly, suffer publicly. It was partly for, for pain and punishment, but a big part of it was for humiliation. And so for Paul, all the things that the Roman authorities put him through, part of it was for pain, but part of it was for humiliation. And Paul's struggle in Corinth is that the Corinthians were embarrassed to be associated with Paul. Now, they had some biblical justification for it. And I'm just going to skate over this detail, but I'll give, it, give you the broad picture. We won't go into a great detail, but if you look back at, or think back to Exodus, I think it's chapter 20. Remember when Moses goes up Sinai to get the law? And while he's up there, he says, God, I want to see your face. And God says, oh, you can't see my face and live. And, but God says, look, I'll hide you in a rock and you can see my back. As I go past, you can see the back. And, and the glory of God was manifested. And the glory, even, even the backside of the, the glory of God, even the diminished glory of God was so spectacular that Moses himself was transfigured. And his own appearance became glorious. And then Moses goes down the Mount Sinai to give the law to the people. And the people, we can't stand to look at you. You, you know, it's too glorious. So he, he took off, he, he covered himself with a veil. And when he wanted to talk to the people, he'd take off the veil for a little while so that he could talk. And then he put the veil back on over himself. And the Corinthians look at that and they say, Paul, you know, if you were an honorable apostle, you wouldn't be humiliated. God wouldn't let that happen to you. If you were, if God was pleased with you, if you were a decent, uh, you're, if you were called, then you'd be glorious like Moses was glorious. You know, and, and Paul is just so humiliated by the Romans and, and the Corinthians say, you know, this is obviously that God's rejected you. We can't stand this. We can't associate with you. You're not a decent apostle. And so Paul is facing two problems. He's facing the own humiliation and struggle of ministry. And then he's facing the rejection from the Corinthian church. We think of Paul's suffering making him a hero, a martyr. They didn't think that. They thought it made him a, made him a failure, a flunky. And so Paul says, in the key to this passage, Paul says in verse 16, Therefore, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart, despite our struggles, despite the beatings, despite the imprisonments, despite the hunger, despite the cold, 
despite the hardship, despite the persecution, Paul says in chapter 4, verse 16, we do not lose heart. And he gives us two reasons why he does not lose heart. We do not, do not lose heart, he says. And his first reason comes out in verse 17, and his second reason comes out in verse 18. And chapter 4, 17 and 18 are introduction, because he gives the first two reasons, he gives those two reasons in 17 and 18, and then he expands them, one each in the paragraphs that follow. So notice his first reason, verse 17. Why don't we lose heart? Because our light and momentary troubles. Do you get the irony there? All that stuff that he went through? He says these are light and momentary troubles. And they're achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Paul says, why don't I lose heart? First of all, he says, because despite all this stuff I'm going through, I look ahead and I know what's coming. Why doesn't Meryl Streep worry about the size of her nose anymore? She's had this spectacular career. More Academy Award nominations than any other actor in history. Does the size of her nose matter? Not at all. Did it matter 30 years ago before she knew how her career was going to turn out? Sure. Does it matter now? She thinks it helped her career because it gave her a distinctive look. People remembered her. She wasn't just another pretty face. So Paul looks ahead to the future and he says, I know what's coming. An eternal glory. It's not that Paul is going to go into heaven and that heaven is going to be a glorious place. Paul is saying what's going to happen is, is God is going to touch him. And Paul, physically, will one day be glorious. That little thing that Moses had on that hill where he became glorious and he came down and he covered his face, after a few days that glory wore off. Paul says, my glory is not going to wear off. I'm going to be glorified. Eternally. They're achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So all this other stuff that is so hard, so oppressive, Paul says, this is little stuff compared to the amount of glory that's coming. And then he gives us in 4.18 a second reason why he, does, why he can endure. He says, because this future day is coming, and because that glory is waiting, he says, I shift my focus off the present and now I pursue. I have to pursue that future to make sure it does come. I'm going to give my life to it. All this other stuff doesn't matter. Because not only is glory coming, but because I'm working toward that glory. I'm focused on that glory. Notice verse 18. So we fix our eyes, not on what we can see now. We fix our eyes, we fix our attention on what is unseen. I don't see that glory yet. But instead of focusing on the things now that dissatisfy me, what I'm doing, Paul says, is, is I look ahead to what's coming. What's unseen. And not seeable because it's glorious. We can't bear to see it now. And so I fix my eyes on what is unseen. Since what we can see now is temporary. And what is unseen is eternal. So Paul offers these two reasons. One is because it's tough. 
Yeah, this stuff is painful. This stuff is hard. You know it's hard, right? But it's small compared to that great glory that's coming. And then Paul says, I got to make sure I qualify for that glory. So I'm going to ignore this little stuff. These hindrances, these discouragements, these frustrations. I'm going to ignore these to make sure I grab hold of that glory. And so now he expands both these ideas. Notice in in chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. We know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, the earthly tent is our bodies. We know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not made by with human hands. And meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. We want to have this glorified body, this heavenly body. Because when we're clothed, we won't be found naked. And while we're in this tent, while we're in this physical body, we groan and are burdened. We don't wish to be unclothed, but we want to be clothed instead with the heavenly dwelling. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, he who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who's given us his spirit as a guarantee. So all of this is to elaborate that first point. Paul is saying is, I look at this life's frustrations. Paul says, I I can live with it. Because my focus is on what's coming. And one day this body is going to die, and it won't matter to me anymore. But God will give me a new body. Remember Jesus, when he was risen, Jesus was not a ghost, he had a glorified body. And we don't know what it's going to be like. All we know is it's going to be glorious. But this is the point, is what Jesus became, we will become. We will see him as he is, and we will become like him. We will have a glorified, redeemed body. Big nose or not, I don't know. But we will one day have this glorious body. And so Paul says, whatever happens to my body in this life, I can live with it, because there's something glorious coming. And then he develops a second idea further in verses 6 through 10. Therefore, we are always confident, and we know that as long as we're at home in this body, we're away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident. We prefer to be away from this body. We prefer to be home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we're in the body or or away from it. For we must all appear, notice verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one of us may receive what is due us for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. Paul's motivated by the promise that something glorious is going to come. He will be glorified. But Paul's motivated by this other thing as well, is that one day he's going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And God's going to look at his life, not at his profession of faith. God's going to look at his life and say, how did you live your life? Do you qualify for this glorification or do you not qualify? Paul says in verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Paul says, I want to make sure that I qualify. So if it means enduring some beatings now, that's not a big deal. Because the glory is going to be great and I want to make sure I get hold of that glory. So Paul talks about this glory being not just a reward, but also a motivation. It explains why he lives the way he lives and why he embraces all the suffering. Not just because he wants to, not just because the glory is promised him, 
but because he wants that glory and doesn't want to forfeit it, doesn't want to lose it. Now let's think about how that applies today. The closest application is obviously, you know, for those of you who are here for last year's missions conference and we heard from Libby, I can't use her last name because of the sensitivities, we heard from Libby and we heard about the, the life she spent with her husband and her family in uh, a Muslim country until he was killed. What this text says is that's no longer a stressor for him because he's been glorified. What this text says is it's still a stressor, stressor for her. She talks about missing her husband. And it's a big stressor for her children who are heartbroken that God did not protect their father. It's still a stressor for them, maybe. But what this text says is it's a temporary stress, not a permanent one. There is glorification coming. And by paying the price they paid, it's a reassurance that they're going to celebrate and share in that glorification. Now, maybe some of you were watching the news or were following the news this week and heard that three Americans were uh, killed in Afghanistan. Two of them were visitors to the hospital. I don't know their connection, but one of them was a pediatrician at the hospital. A pediatrician at a Christian hospital in Afghanistan was killed this week. What this text says for him is the stress is over. The reward is won. The glorification is there. It's no longer an issue for him. Or it may be an issue for his wife and his family. And before, you know, the, I, the striking feature about that incident is before he served seven years in Afghanistan, he served 16 years in a uh, church-based health clinic in Chicago, in the worst part of Chicago, the most violent part of Chicago. And he spent 16 years in that health clinic. And he said that actually working in Chicago in the neighborhood he worked in prepared him to go to Afghanistan, if you can imagine. There are places in America that are like that. So he, his story is written. And the outcome is glorious. His family will still struggle with it. But what this text promises is the glory is coming. And by serving the way they've served, they help to ensure their participation in that future glory. Let's take a step further removed, a step less urgent than that. You know, for our church focus, for our congregational focus, and we had a seminar yesterday, for our congregational focus over the next five years, what we're thinking about is this. How can each of us use our vocations in a way that advances the work that God is doing in the world? How can we do something other than go to work, make a lot of money, come home, buy, buy a big house, buy fancy cars, have uh, you know, prosperous children, spoiled children who go to leading universities? How, well, you know, maybe we can do that and serve God. But how can we serve God? And for some of us, that will mean, intentionally, moving overseas in underserved areas so that we can still keep our vocation, serve God through our vocations in an underserved area. Now, you know what that means if you have children. Maybe they won't fit back into American culture so easily because they'll be bicultural, tricultural, and, you know, the whole adjustment thing. They'll be, they'll be odd over there. They'll be odd over here. 
It won't fit in there either place. You'll have to worry about safety issues and all. You'll have to worry about food issues more or traffic issues more or, or pollution issues more. You'll have to worry about how good their English will be and whether they'll be able to get into good universities here. You'll have to worry about uh, whether they'll be comfortable associating with, you know, whether they'll make friends. You know, there's a lot of discomforts we face if we go overseas. Now, one other op option available to pursue this focus is to actually leave your vocation and go into vocational ministry. Now, that adds further dimensions to it. For most of you, if you go into vocational ministry, your income will drop. If you go into vocational ministry overseas, your income will drop even further. What you can provide for your family would be much less. And this, frankly, there are ways to pursue our congregational focus without it influencing your quality of life in any significant way. But some of you, if you pursue this congregational focus, will have temporary deleterious effects to your standard of living, to your comfort in life, if you follow this congregational focus. What will help you do it? Paul says two things. First of all, these negative harmful effects are temporary. They will be far overshadowed by what's coming. The great glory, you won't remember this stuff. It'll last a lot longer and it'll be a lot more spectacular. The other thing is, Paul says, the other thing that'll motivate us is this. If we get to the end of time and we appear before the judgment seat of Christ and Christ says, look, here's what I paid. What did you pay? If we can't say anything, it's going to be a very uncomfortable position. Paul says, there's two things that motivate me. One thing that motivates me is the great spectacular reward that's coming. The other thing that motivates me is standing before the judgment seat of Christ and telling him what I did for him in response out of love for what he did for me. Now, the final application I want to draw attention to is this. So let's go back to the beginning. Let's say your nose is too big. Or no, come on. Let's say your nose is too flat if you're Asian. Or let's take this out of the other. Let's say you don't, you're not the stereotype, you know, the, the math, science, what's the slogan for that? Let's say you're not the brilliant Asian stereotype and you struggle to get ahead. Or let's say, I don't know, you're not sociable, you're kind of shy. Or let's say you struggle with, you know, anxiety and depression. And some of these are really painful. This is serious stuff. I, I don't mean to negate it. What does this text say to you? What the text says to us is this. Therefore, we make it our goal to please him. Whether we're at home in the body or away from it, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due. What this text tells us is think ahead to the future. What this text tells us is that there's an eternal glory that's coming. What this text tells us is, let's think about the things that matter. Let's become a community that draws each other's attention to the things. This stuff, it's painful now. It's this stuff is small. It doesn't matter. What matters is the glory that's coming and our standing before the judgment seat of Christ. 
Let's remind each other of these things. That the things we struggle with now are really, really insignificant compared to the great glory that's coming and compared to the challenge in front of us as we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we do appreciate your patience. That we get fussed about stuff that our culture counts as important. And we know it's not important. And yet it still, it still draws us, it still affects us, it still compels us. Father, work in our lives by your word, through your spirit, so that what we really care about is what you care about, what the Apostle Paul learned to care about. We ask for your grace in Jesus' name. Amen.